Well, if you would again, let's take out our Bibles and let's turn to John's Gospel, chapter 4. And we will be reading and looking at the first 15 verses. Now, I will just say, um, this, is, this is actually a longer section. Um, and it, it actually pained me to have to cut it off where we do. There's probably at least three sermons in this. And uh, so I will, I will try to continually remind us of the larger context as we go through this. But really, uh, you know, it's such a, such a big section. We would be here for three hours probably if I was to try to do everything together. And some of you are saying right now, thank you for not doing that. Um, but it's, there's a lot here. There's just a lot here. So much symbolism. So much that Jesus is doing um, in, in, his, in his words to this Samaritan woman. Um, and so we'll, we'll be digging into this uh, starting this week and for the next several. So, John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. Let us pay careful attention to the reading of it. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The grass withers The flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. Uh, You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of your word today. We ask, O God, that you would be pleased to till it deeply into our hearts. Help us to see the great promises of your word, as you called us to come 
who, those who are thirsty to come to the waters. And the promise of Jesus that He is giving living water. Help us to apprehend these truths. Help us to apply them into our lives. May we be changed today by Your Word. Help us, O oh God, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. One of the most incredible things about living in the desert is to see the effects of rain on the land. Uh, as many of you know, some of you may not know, but I grew up in Arizona. And in Arizona, there are actually two rainy seasons. There's one rainy season that happens in the winter and early spring. And then there's another one in the summer we call the monsoon season. Now, the winter rains, if they're heavy enough would produce a spring which abounds in color. The trees would seem to be more green than they have ever been. The the wildflowers would be in such abundance. You wouldn't imagine that such things grew in this place. And yet they do. The mountainsides would be covered with green and color. Places which were ordinarily brown and dry and seemingly dead would teem with brilliant color and with life. Unless you've experienced this, it's sometimes hard to imagine. But consider for a moment how different the Ozarks are from a desert. You know, everything else being equal, the same latitude, the same elevation, the difference is water. We have an abundance of water here. We have regular rains. We have springs of water which flow into rivers, which well up in our region, bringing such an abundance of life to the Ozarks. And perhaps this brings something to mind of a picture that the scriptures are conveying, and that is this, that water brings life. Jesus brings living water He brings eternal life. In fact, Jesus is himself the fount who provides spiritual water for his people. A people who are thirsty and parched. Jesus brings eternal life because he is himself the fount of life. Our Lord gives a life of fullness, a life of satisfaction. He brings true life. Now, the Samaritan woman, which we read about in our text today, she had come once again to fetch water from this ancient well that uh, the father Jacob had dug. This is probably a trip that she would make regularly, probably every single day, having to go to the well. She was physically thirsty. She needed to satisfy this physical thirst within her. But what she didn't understand yet, though she will, but what she didn't understand yet was the extent of her spiritual thirst. And this our Lord would confront with her, as He does throughout the Gospels. He will confront her great need, and He is confronting our great need as well. And so as we come back into the narrative of John's Gospel, you might recall some of the various interactions which Jesus has been having. You remember that He had changed water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. He had spoken with Nicodemus in Judea. This is the teacher of Israel. 
He was teaching and he was preaching. His disciples were baptizing. People were coming to Jesus. John the Baptist uh, has, has once again needs to bear witness to Jesus. He does this to his own disciples who have become jealous now of Jesus. We looked at that last week. Jesus is seeing many coming to him. John had to remind his disciples that, that, that John himself needed to decrease as Christ increases. And so this growing influence and, and the particular message of the Savior no doubt was bringing to him an increased level of scrutiny. We might remember that uh, the followers, or that John the Baptist had some Pharisees come to him and were questioning him on, on his practices, on his teaching, on his baptism. And so knowing uh, that, that he, or Jesus had knew that they had heard that he was gaining more disciples than John, in, in, in Judea, he had determined to leave that place and now to go back to Galilee. And so he does. This is where he goes back to Galilee. Now you'll notice in verse 4 that it says that he had to pass through Samaria. That is to say that the route from Judea to Galilee was through Samaria. Now, there's a number of commentators who have stated that, th- that Jesus really didn't have to go through Samaria, that there were other ways that he could have gone. He could have taken another route. Uh, there, there, the other route would have been around. Uh, but really, geography does dictate the route which people would take. There are mountains in between that need to be contended with. And so a traveler going from Judea north into Galilee would need to actually pass through Samaria. This was roughly a three days journey on foot. Now, of course, there is another route, but that that route would have required going across the Jordan River near Jericho, then traveling north along the river on the eastern bank, through what was largely Gentile territory, and then crossing back over into Israel near the Sea of Galilee. Now, this longer route would essentially double the time in travel. And so it would have been incredibly inconvenient. Now, again, some commentators have suggested there was the, that the animosity between Samaritans and Jews was so strong that a Jewish traveler would have preferred that longer route uh, along the Transjordan. They would, have, they would have taken that sort of double-the-time route. And certainly there, there were cases of this, but uh, although the aversion was strong between the Jews and the, and the uh, Samaritans, uh, the historian Josephus assures us the shorter route through Samaria was indeed the preferred route. This really was the route most of the Jews took. In fact, it isn't, it isn't that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't interact with one another, but rather that it was, it was that the Jews were afraid of being made ceremonially unclean by them. And so they wouldn't eat with them. They, they wouldn't drink with them. They wouldn't share uh, utensils with them. And so the route through Samaria is really the result of geography. But nevertheless, even though that this was the, the normal route, this does not change the fact that this meeting between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well is an example of God's providence. Jesus took the customary route through Samaria and yet had a divine appointment 
with this particular woman at a particular time and at this particular place, that namely Jacob's well. And so we read that Jesus, as he's traveling through Samaria, and they come to this town in Samaria, this town called uh, Sychar. Now, that village is situated where modern-day Askar is. Uh, it's on the shoulder of Mount uh, Ebal. Um, you would need to look at a map if you want to know exactly where I'm speaking of. Um, but this is the same place as the Old Testament city of Shechem. You might remember Shechem from uh, our study in Genesis. And Shechem means shoulder. And so here, here was an important parcel of real estate which the patriarch Jacob had given to Joseph. Now, this was in Genesis chapter 48 and verse 22 where he says this, Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. So Jacob had purchased land in Genesis chapter 33. He had purchased this from Hamor uh, for a hundred pieces of silver. And But this is also the place that the sons of Jacob, you remember this, Simeon and Levi, they were avenging the, the rape of their sister. And so they murdered all the men of that place by the sword. So there's a lot of things that have happened in this particular place. This is a significant piece of property. And although it's not recorded in Scripture for us, Jacob had dug a well, at some point, had dug a well in that place. And so that well, which is nearly 2,000 years old, had, uh, after, had passed since Jacob had dug it, that well was still providing water for people. It was still providing water. People were still coming from the village and from the, from the city, from the surrounding area, uh, to get water. They were water, their flock, many flocks had been watered there. People were getting their drinking water from that same well. And now, our Lord is sitting at that well. He is weary from His journey. And so He's sitting there, and it's around, around noontime. Now, the weariness of Jesus also reminds us of something, and that is, that Jesus, that is of His true humanity. You know, John uh, has been building the case for the divinity of Christ. Right? There's, there is such rich Christology in John's gospel. And he, he's, been, he's been showing us that Jesus is God. But he does want to remind us as well of the true humanity of Jesus. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And so our Lord was tired He was weary from his journey, just as any of us would be weary from such a journey as that. He's thirsty as well. He wants a drink of water. He wants to drink the cool, refreshing water of the well. This well which seemed to never run dry as it, again, continues to provide water for people. And so we read in verse 8, the disciples of Jesus had gone away. They were in the city. They were buying food. And this makes sense. Jesus is the teacher. um, And it was often the case that the students would go and and buy uh, food for their teacher. I should probably uh, tell, make sure to tell the students here about that. You know, as I teach class, that, you know, their teacher needs to be fed. Um, And so he's, he's alone sitting at the well. And 
along comes a woman to draw water. Now notice that this woman comes alone to the well, and it says it's the sixth hour. Which is, again, this is noon. This is the middle of the day. In fact, this is the the height of the sun during the day. Now, this is unusual. First of all, typically, the village women would come to the well in groups. They would come together. And also, they wouldn't come at noon. They would usually come either first thing in the morning before the heat of the day has come on, or or they would come in the evening uh, during the cool of the day, but not come at noon, and you wouldn't come alone. And yet here is this woman. She has come to the well, she has come alone, and she has come during the heat of the day. Now this, would, this may indicate something of her social standing within the community. Perhaps her social standing relates to her personal sin. Uh, something that Jesus is going to confront. Uh, we didn't read that part of the text here yet. We will look at that in the future. But we see that in verse 16 and following. The woman had become something of a pariah in the community. She had not been uh, maintained Uh, she wasn't sexually chaste in her lifestyle. And so she comes to the well and she comes alone. She comes during the heat of the day. And as she comes, she sees this stranger sitting there. And to her astonishment, this man, verse 7, asks her for a drink. And so she asks, verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now, Jesus is obviously a Jew. She recognizes that Jesus is a Jew. And so she's curious. Why should he be speaking to her and asking for a drink from her? Now, John also provides us a parenthetical statement which clarifies the situation. And and she would have been quite used to the fact that in the main, the Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Now, I will say this. Our translation in, in English is not actually the best. The ESV says the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. But it's not so much that the Jews didn't have dealings with the Samaritans. In fact, they dealt with them in all sorts of ways. I mean, we already see right now that the disciples have gone to buy food. So obviously there's some dealings of the Jews and the Samaritans. Perhaps the Jews were were dismissive towards the Samaritans. But they didn't deal with them. Really, a better translation might be that they did not use things in common with the Samaritans. They didn't use things in common with the Samaritans. You see, the issue was that Jews would not eat or drink with the Samaritans. They wouldn't share utensils, they wouldn't share plates, they wouldn't share cups with them. They didn't have friendly association with them as one might say with a fellowship meal, like in our own context, right? Where we we share food together, we share fellowship. And And the issue for the Jews was a fear of ceremonial defilement. The Samaritans were considered to be an unclean people, even though they're, they're basically relatives, right? 
Notice too that Jesus asks for a drink of water, but Jesus doesn't have a cup. You understand now the question that she asks. How could you ask for a drink from me? You're a Jew. You don't even have a cup. What is he? He can only drink from her cup. He's asking for a drink from a Samaritan woman. Jesus is challenging a number of social norms of his day. You see, one of the other problems is that in the Mishnah, which was the codified Jewish law, it taught that women, Samaritan women, were perpetually in a state of ceremonially uncleanness, and they were from their birth. In other words, this woman, in the eyes of of the Jews, this Samaritan woman, could never be ceremonially clean. Never. She's hopeless. She's, She's untouchable, in a sense. And so it's fitting, really, if you think about it, it's fitting that the Lord would go to this kind of person. This person who the Jews would have thought is hopeless. And actually, as we will leave, it's not only that she's a woman and a Samaritan, but she's a great sinner sexually. She's a sinner. She's unclean in in so many ways. And yet here is Jesus asking for the drink it's astonishing. It's astonishing that uh, he's asking for this from her. She, she's amazed. She's shocked by this. This is such a strange request. And so she wonders, why, why would you do this? But then Jesus gives her a most peculiar response. One, one, which, one which must have been very thought-provoking to her. Look at starting at verse 10. He says, Jesus answered and says, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. In other words, if you rightly understood who it is who is asking for this drink of water, the gift which is offered to you, you wouldn't respond to me by recounting the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. You would have asked me for a drink. You would have asked for the drink that I have to offer. And I would have given it to you. I would have given you living water. The gift of God that Jesus is referring to is eternal life. Eternal life that only Jesus could bestow. And Jesus is himself the gift. The Apostle Paul speaks of salvation in much the same way in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. The gift of God in Christ Jesus is eternal life in Him. And so what the, the Samaritan woman doesn't know or doesn't understand at this point is that Jesus was offering her life. This one who is hopeless, right? She's hopeless. She's a Samaritan woman. He, Jesus is offering her life. He's offering her living water. The one who was deemed hopelessly defiled could be restored. She was being offered a gift in that moment. She didn't understand, but in time, she would, in to- she would receive it and embrace it. 
here's a woman that, you know, considered herself to be hopeless. And sometimes people think they're hopeless too. Ever shared the gospel with somebody and they would say something like this, you know, that sounds great, but I'm too bad. You don't know how awful I am. Maybe, maybe you've thought of that, about that yourself. Maybe you think, well, you just don't know how bad I actually am. Well, cheer up, you're actually much worse than you think. But God's grace is so much more abundant to you. This woman has hope, and you do too. And so here, here, here's this woman. She doesn't understand yet. Of course, Nicodemus didn't understand either. He was the teacher of Israel. And so she's puzzled by Jesus' words. She, she's not thinking in terms of Old Testament imagery. And, and then this, this term, the living water, it could actually have two levels of meaning. One is to denote fresh running water from a spring, like the well they were at. Living water, it's moving. This is the reason why it continues to provide water, because the water is flowing. It's sort of an underground river there. But the other usage is one of a myriad of metaphors which speak of eternal life and which comes from God Himself. And so if the woman had known who Jesus was, if she had understood immediately who she was, then she would have immediately wanted what He had to offer, which of course she does later, once she understands. But she would have wanted it then. She would have wanted what he offered, which was far greater than any water in that well. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13 provides some context to us for living water. Listen to what it says. Jeremiah 2.13 For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The Lord is saying that He Himself is the fount of living water. If, if, if God Himself is the, is the fountain of water, then what are you doing digging cisterns? Why are you trying to make your own way? That's what He's asking. Jeremiah seventeen thirteen again, calls the Lord the fountain of living water. He is the one who provides life. Why are you trying to find life in yourself? Why aren't you trusting in the Lord? Jesus is the fountain of living water. This is the connection that that John wants us to get. Again, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is God. Jesus is the fountain of living water. He is the giver of life. He is the one who gives abundance. He's the one who gives eternal life. And this Samaritan woman, she's not grasping Jesus' meaning, but... she will begin to ask further questions. Of course, this is what Jesus wants. She wants him, her to be asking some of these questions. So she thinks, she thinks that Jesus is still talking about fresh water, right? The water in the well. That's what she thinks. And so she says in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? I mean, Jesus is here. He appears to be unprepared to get any water out of this well. He doesn't have a bucket. Where's your bucket? Where's your cup? How are you going to get living water? In the ancient world, it was customary for a traveler to bring along a goat-skinned bucket in order to draw water from any wells that they would come upon along the way. 
Jesus didn't have this. Jesus came, is sitting there, he doesn't have anything. Now perhaps the disciples have it with them in town, but Jesus is saying, stating the obvious, sir, you don't have a bucket. How do you expect to get water out of that well? I mean, it's, it's a sensible question, isn't it? Being that she doesn't understand what he's speaking about. And in some ways, the statement seems comical. How do you expect to draw out any flowing water from, a, from deep within the spring if you don't have anything with which to draw it with? How do you intend to give me a drink? I mean, this is actually hilarious. You're totally unprepared, man. Where do you plan on giving, getting this living water? I mean, her questions reflect something of her incredulity. She, she's astounded. What, what do you mean? What, do you, what, are you, what are you talking about? In order to get water from that spot, one would need to dig a very deep well and then bring that water up to the surface. Jacob had found it necessary, it turns out, to dig a well. If Jesus was to provide this living water without, any, without expending any kind of energy whatsoever, then he would need to be greater than Jacob. You see, Jacob found it necessary to dig a well. You must be better than Jacob, must be greater than Jacob. Otherwise, she probably thought, this man is nothing more than a charlatan. He speaks nonsense. The form of her question, in fact, and the subsequent answer implies that she believed the latter. No, no, she thought, this stranger is not greater than Jacob. He speaks nonsense. How can he expect to provide living water and he doesn't even have a bucket, let alone a shovel? So the woman's misunderstanding what Jesus meant combined with irony makes her doubly wrong. The living water which Jesus offers doesn't come from an ordinary well. He is offering eternal life as the fountain of living water himself. Which then brings us to the other irony of this. Of course Jesus is greater than Jacob. That's the irony. Of course he's greater than Jacob because he is God in the flesh. The woman doesn't know what she's stating. And this is a point which you and I can appreciate, even if the Samaritan woman at this point does not. Similarly, a, a skeptical question is asked later concerning Jesus and Abraham in chapter 8, with just as much irony as here. And Jesus' response to that question is this, Before Abraham was, I am. Of course, then the men understanding what he was getting at, picked up stones to stone him. The Samaritan woman could not imagine someone greater than Jacob, the man who had dug this well that they were at. She couldn't imagine someone who could supply living water without even a cup to drink it from. Jesus, however, gently answers her skeptical Skeptical derision. Look at verse 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There's no denying that Jacob was a great man. He was one of the patriarchs. Jesus would grant that. But anyone who came to this well to get a drink... 
Well, they would need to come back again and again and again. They become thirsty again. And so as wonderful as that well was, and it was a wonderful provision, particularly in the hot and dry summers, the well, this well could not satisfy your thirst. But ultimately. Anyone who drank of its waters would have to drink again. Surely this woman had been to this well many times. She'd made the trek there to draw water. And she would need to continue to come day after day. And here's Jesus offering water which does satisfy. A water which would quench the thirst of the most part of souls. A water which would assuage the inner thirstiness of the Samaritan woman's heart. Now it should be said that the thirst with which this water quenches is not a thirst for natural water. What needed to be refreshed was a drought of God's presence. Her satisfaction needed to be found in the Lord. And there is a need in every human being to, be, to find fulfillment in the presence of the Lord. To, to fulfill our chief end, which is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. There's a thirst within each and every single one of us which cannot be fulfilled in this natural world. That there's an inward ache which is not relieved by removing its desire, nor is it filled through the means of this world. You cannot fill it with what the world provides. It can only be resolved by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon you. Indeed, Jesus says that the one who drinks the water which he gives will never again thirst, but will become in that one a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Here again are echoes of Old Testament promises. Now, D.A. Carson knows that the Samaritans may not have appreciated the Old Testament allusions because their scriptures were limited to the Pentateuch, that is, the first five books of the scriptures. John's readers would have appreciated the Old Testament allusions. A spring of water welling up to eternal life has Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 3 in mind. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. God is our salvation. And the prophet Isaiah envisions a future age where the people rejoice greatly in Him. And the people... Will will experience neither hunger nor thirst. The Lord has made an everlasting covenant with the Jews and with believers represented from among the nations who you do not know, Isaiah 55 reminds us. Who are coming at his invitation. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come here that your thirst, that your soul may live. Come to the waters. The people are being called to the water to forsake the wicked ways, to come to God who in His mercy will freely pardon all of your sin. Come to the water, all who are thirsty. Come, buy without money. Be fed. Hear the Word. Live. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. The Lord is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the, let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Come, he says, that he may have compassion and be his God and abundantly pardon. This is the gospel, isn't it? This is the good news that Jesus had come to fulfill. And indeed, Jesus will shortly take this brief encounter with the Samaritan woman and then turn it toward her immoral lifestyle. He will confront her with her sin. As we've been saying for the past several weeks, Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. The spring water welling up to eternal life speaks of God's pouring out His Spirit on His people. And this is really this, very similar to what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus when he, when he spoke of being born again or born from above. The Spirit being poured out on a dry and thirsty land. This is regenerative water, just as the Holy Spirit regenerates His people. Consider again the, the illusion being given here. The, the transformation which water brings to a dry and weary land. As life begins to sprout out of the dusty ground. And as the desert becomes a green place full of, of much life. Abundance of flowers. This is a picture of, being, of life, the life-redeeming work of the Spirit. This is a picture of, of water bringing life to the desert, bringing life to the desert of your heart. That rocky soil taking on new life with an abundance of water, an abundance of the Spirit. This is strongly reminiscent of the change of heart, of being born again, an exchange, an exchange of formalism and religion, a new heart being given of knowing the Lord, of experiencing the Lord. You see, this woman has been living under the weight of of an overly formalized religion. She'd been living with the added rules of men. Was she really so untouchable? As the Jewish leaders would have said. Is she really without hope? Jesus says no. No, what she needed was to experience life-transforming work of God in Christ to know the Lord and so in speaking of water here Jesus is actually speaking the woman's language she understood what that meant to the land that she lived in she understood the power of water over life a drought could quickly devastate the fields and devastate the livestock now consider a drought of God's word a drought of the Lord even more so in the hearts of men. And she was living in such a drought. And so she needed to be confronted with that fact that she needed the transforming work of the Spirit. She needed that living water poured out abundantly on her because because she's living immorally and she needed to know the Lord. But the woman, like Nicodemus, continued to think in purely earthly terms. You see, she didn't want to go to the well anymore. Oh, there's water where I don't have to come back again. That sounds really fantastic. I don't have to come walking to the well every day. She hadn't yet deduced that Jesus was speaking in spiritual terms. 
Jesus was speaking of the great need that she had. Her great need wasn't that she doesn't need to walk to the well anymore. The need was for the quenching she needed in her heart, in her soul. In her mind, if Jesus was indeed speaking the truth, and, and she does seem a bit skeptical at this point, she just wants to avoid these trips. If for nothing else, then the shame of having to make the trips alone. Perhaps the daily trip to the well was a reminder of her own sin and the reason she had to make that trip alone. And so it will be here that Jesus will confront her in her sin. He will get right to the heart of the matter when he tells her to call her husband. This change of subject, though abrupt, is not artificial. Jesus gets right to the heart. He will call her through faith and he will call her to repentance. Already she has, been, has shown that she didn't grasp who Jesus was, and, but neither did Nicodemus, and he was the teacher of Israel. Neither a representative of Israel, Nicodemus, nor of Samaria, this woman, understood the water that was being promised and was being freely given. And Jesus will now help this dear woman come to terms with the nature of the gift that he was offering by displaying a knowledge of her messy past and her her immoral present. And in confronting her with her sin, though... He, though he will offer her the, the free gift of repentance and faith, but that we'll have to look at next time. You, you can see, in a way, the frustration of preaching this passage, right? There's, just, there's more that needs to be said, but we'll have to wait. That means you have to come back uh, next time. Um, I do want to, though, go back and think about the amazing thing about Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman, and that is not that he's speaking with a Samaritan. So that's uh, culturally abnormal. Nor that she, that, that she was a woman. But that she was willing, or rather that Jesus was willing to drink from her cup. A Samaritan woman who is considered to be perpetually unclean, Jesus is willing to drink from her cup. This is what shocked her. He has no vessel of his own. The Son of God came into the world being born of woman, born under the law, experiencing all the hardships and pains, the humiliation of this life, yet without sin, so that He could drink the cup of God's wrath that you and I should have drank. Jesus drinks it on our behalf. Jesus drinks it to its dregs. Another Old Testament picture. Jesus came to drink the cup for us. And by the way, He did this willingly and joyfully. He endured the shame of the cross for our sake. Jesus drinks the cup of wrath that you and I deserve. And He offers to us the cup of eternal life. Think about that picture for a moment. Here's a woman that Jesus meets at this well. And she is a great sinner. But she's not unlike you and me. You and I are like this woman at the well. She had a thirst, which was not a physical thirst, a spiritual thirst, and yet she had been trying to fill that spiritual need, that spiritual emptiness with physical things. 
with the things of this world. She was trying to fill that void in her heart for God and with or and for God's spirit with the things of this world. And Jesus is offering to fill that which is lacking in her spiritual life. He was offering living water, transforming water, which would well up to eternal life in her. He was offering himself to her, his spirit. He was offering to transform her. He was offering her life abundant forever. This cup, beloved congregation, is being held out to you as well. Jesus says, through the prophet Isaiah, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Buy milk, buy wine, without money, without price. Beloved congregation, if you are trusting and resting in Jesus Christ, then He has given you His living water. He has poured out His Spirit upon you. And you can rest in Him. You can take great joy in Him knowing that you are secure in Him. You have been transformed into a new creature in Him. This life, this eternal life is yours in Christ Jesus. So you can rest and be refreshed in your Savior. You can take great comfort in knowing that all of the aches within you can be and are being satisfied in Jesus Christ. But for those who are outside of Christ, today He offers you the same. He offers you to come, come, drink. He offers salvation as a free gift. And no longer must you seek to fill that which is lacking in yourself. And you know that there's something lacking in you. You sense it. And you ask, well, how do you know that? Because I, I know for myself. All of us know that. No longer shall you drink of this world and be unsatisfied. Beloved, drink deeply. Drink richly of the cup of our Savior Jesus, who offers living water, who offers eternal life in Him. Repent of your sin. Turn, beloved. Be refreshed in Christ Jesus, the Savior. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the fact that Jesus offers Himself that He freely offers Himself on the cross, that even here in this, this one-on-one interaction with this Samaritan woman, He's offering Himself as He offers this living water, a spring of water which would well up to eternal life. We're thankful, O oh God, that Jesus confronts our sin just as He does with the Samaritan woman. That He confronts us, calls us to repentance, and then transforms us and changes us by His Spirit, which He pours out abundantly. We thank You that we have eternal life to look forward to. That we have been indeed changed. We do pray, Father, for those among us who do not know Jesus, are not in Him. We pray that You would pour out Your Spirit upon them. That they may hear, even for the first time today, hear the gospel and be changed and believe. 
that they may not look to the things of this world, but look to their God and to their Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, for your transforming work, even here, even now, in this moment. We ask this in the name of our powerful and wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.